as you, um, as I know, you know, uh, my sisters, you've gone through uh, the study of the book of Esther, and so it's just been uh, just wonderful to, of course, for you to go through it on the, on our Wednesday nights, but uh, all of us together to just be blessed as uh, the main the main subject um, of this whole book is is what one word God's oh come on providence, providence right God's providence that's that's what it is hmm and so it um, it serves as um, and I kept reminding you week in and week out that it should encourage you in those times when um, when you're down, when you believe that everything is just stacked against you, how it is that um, Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose, how it is that that is so true. He's working out a bigger picture, and we're part of that. And even when things look bleak, um, the Lord is faithful. He says he loves us with an everlasting love. He tells us that he'll never leave us nor forsake us, and um, he is faithful, and um, so that's a, that should be encouraging. So, like I said, you know, we're concluding the book of Esther this evening. Everything comes to a head as the day that was decreed uh, to be the actual annihilation of the Jewish people in the Medo, Medo-Persian Empire actually is, is turned around, right? Um, and yet we know that uh, this evening, as we go into chapter 9, it finally arrives. That day finally arrives. And it's amazing how God in His providence turned things around on the heads of His people's enemies. And really the bottom line is He turned it around on the enemies that were directly opposed to Him and delivered His people from impending doom. Now, there's so much commentary on this book that states that this book uh, has absolutely no miracles in it whatsoever. And I must say, I beg to differ. And this is why. Because I believe whether we acknowledge it or not, every single day as ordinary as it seems contains many miracles within it. Things happen that are extraordinary. Events that transcend ordinary laws of nature. Things that defy common expectations of behavior. Miracles are events that involve the direct and powerful actions of God. And does he not always perform those on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment basis? He does. God always directly is directly and powerfully involved in our lives. He's never left us. He's never forsaken us. We just need to pay attention. We just need to pay attention. But listen, salvation is enough for us, isn't it? Everything on top of that is just such a privilege, such an honor to be given opportunities to just simply bless Him. So, Considering the book of Esther, when a person examines the events in the book of Esther, everything that led to their deliverance, as we'll see this evening, I don't know how anyone can come to any other conclusion other than God miraculously saved them. 2 Corinthians 10, 17 says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We won't boast in Esther. We won't boast in Mordecai. Any more than we would boast in perhaps Joseph. Or Moses. Or Elijah. We'll boast in the Lord alone. Because we know that he is the one that makes all of this possible. He may use us as instruments in his hands, but we should always look to our God that has delivered us and moves in in and through us and give him all the glory. Again, Romans 8.28, 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. Oh, we thank you that you are sovereign. You are on the throne. Lord, there is no one above you. And again, although as we consider the Jewish people who were in captivity, Lord, they were, they were separated from Jerusalem. Lord, they still remain your people. Lord, they were in that place and it seemed so bleak as this decree went out and Lord, it was, it was certain that they would meet their end on this 13th day of Adar. And yet, Lord, in your providence, Lord, uh, things were, were turned around in such a way that um, your people were delivered. They found relief. And so, Lord, I, I ask, Lord, that you would speak to us this evening, Lord, that these things that we learned, that they would, they would, they would deepen our faith, they would increase and, and strengthen our faith in you, our trust in you. Lord, that we would glorify you and bless you. Lord, that we would find great contentment and joy in drawing near to you. And so, Father, give us understanding of your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Esther chapter 9, Esther chapter 9, verse 1 says, Now, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. We're going to stop there. Uh, this is our, our introduction into the final stage of God's providential deliverance. And um, so we open up with this, really the statement of victory. The enemies of the Jews had hoped to gain mastery over them. And yet what we see here is that the Jews gain mastery over them. Proverbs 28.10 says, Whoever misleads the upright into an evil way will fall into his own pit but the blameless will have a goodly inheritance. Psalm 141.10 says, Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass safely. Even when we think that our enemies have gotten the best of us. Even when we see that perhaps they have known victory. Rest assured that God sees everything. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the, na to, to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So we know that he sees all things. Nothing escapes the Lord. At the same time, we need to understand this. That there is a work that is being accomplished in you. The work of sanctification. Sometimes we... You know, we get comfortable in where we are with the Lord. You know, our, our, we believe our, our faith is strong, and it may be strong, but it can be strengthened a little bit more. Our person can be molded and shaped a little bit more to reflect the Lord in our lives. And so there's a work that's happening in our lives to test our faith, perhaps, to build our patience, our steadfastness in the Lord, to learn how to fix our hope on Him, to fix our eyes on Him, to cling to Him, to not doubt. In fact, James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Therefore, as we go through trials, tribulations, testings, all of these things, we must learn to keep our eyes fixed upon the Lord, cling to Him, trust in Him, and walk with Him, bringing Him glory. Oftentimes, 
what we do is, and we're inclined to do this, we fix our eyes on us. And then we have this victim mentality, right? Woe is me. And, and we turn all, our, our, all attention inward when we should be fixed upon the Lord. And so, you know, even as we have this statement of victory made in this first verse of chapter 9, and we know that the Lord has worked all, things, all of these things out in such a way that now it's being, uh, the enemies of the Jews are being handed over to them. We must also understand there's been a process to it. And the Lord was working in their lives just as much as he, working, he was working things out to deliver them. So as things progressed and finally came to a head, we see how things turned around on the enemies of God. And favor was given to the people of God. Verse 2, it says, The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the, the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. You know, as I had pointed out last week, as the counter decree was written, sealed, delivered, and then communicated to all the people in all 127 provinces and in their tongues, it was done as the king sent them out. It was the kings, they were the king's officials that were sent out to deliver, to communicate there's this counter decree. It was known that the king, with full knowledge, had allowed Queen Esther and Mordecai, given them liberty, you write this decree as you see fit. I will sign it, Mordecai. You have my signet ring. You can go ahead and seal it, make it official, and we will make sure it is delivered to all 127 provinces of the empire. And the people knew this. It was a decree that officially gave the Jews the authorization to defend themselves and to even counter to destroy and kill and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, according to chapter 8, verse 11. And so, because of this, as I had noted last week, because of this, that they were sent by the king himself, the people were struck with fear, and no one can stand against them. Not only that... But all the officials, all the leaders, all the governors of the provinces helped the Jews because they feared Mordecai. Interesting how it was that Mordecai has now been elevated by God to this position of power and authority. As I had pointed out last week, it wasn't Mordecai that was vying for position. He wasn't the one that was making things happen in order for him to win this position within the kingdom. He was simply being faithful to the young lady that he had promised to raise. He had personal integrity as he found out that these, these men were, were plotting the assassination of the king, and he brought it to Esther's attention, and therefore she took it to the king, and, and then, of course, that was countered, and they were not successful. All Mordecai was doing was doing what was right. And the Lord elevated him to this place to where now he was second only 
to King Ahasuerus, and he was given favor, and they feared him. They feared Mordecai because he was great in the eyes of the king, and he was also great in the eyes of all of the people. And because of this, he grew more and more powerful. And so because of this, the Jews were able to strike their enemies who hated them with great force and killing and destroying them. But again, I point out that the world would tend to give credit to the king for having given the Jews this victory. This is where we need to understand that it is God who has given given them favor. It is God who has moved the hand of the king, uh, orchestrated uh, the timing of these events in such a way That as you look back, oh, it's amazing how it is that our sovereign God, his providential hand has moved and orchestrated everything to make sure that they find relief from their enemies, giving them favor and victory over them. You know, I think I had mentioned this before, but... I couldn't help it came to mind again, but the the exchange between Jesus and Pilate. In John chapter 19, verse 11, Jesus, when he was before Pilate, when Pilate was telling him that that he could have his way with him is is basically, and, and I'm summarizing it, I'm paraphrasing it myself. But when Jesus answered him saying, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from Above, There's, You have no authority, Pilate. It's only that which is given to a person for whatever reasons that they're able to do anything at all. So you consider the king. We don't give him credit. Just like I said, we don't, we don't give Esther the credit. We don't give Mordecai the credit. We thank God that They were faithful to do the things that they did, just as Joseph, just as others that we can mention. But all glory goes to the Lord. And you know, that's one of the things that I've, it's been just um, deeply embedded in my own heart, is never touch God's glory. Never touch His glory. And so the Jews were given victory, and they did as they pleased to those who hated them, those who desire to do them harm. Verse 6, as we continue, says, In Susa, the citadel uh, itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Poratha and Adalia and Eridatha and Parmashta and Arisai and Eridai and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. So 500 in the capital. Now, 500 sounds like a high number, but given the population of the capital, it was a small, very small percentage of the population. And so what this tells us, because it was a very small population uh, percentage of the overall population is that most people in Susa were actually in support of the Jews. So there were very few that actually came against the Jews. Now, the names of the ten sons of Haman are listed here as they were all ten killed, along with the other 500 that were killed in the capital. And, you know, as you consider this, this is most, was most likely done. To avoid them taking revenge on Mordecai and the Jews. Now we also have noted here. And two other times as you. As as we read through there. In verse 10 it says. But they laid no hand on the plunder. So three times as we continue to read. We're going to read that two more times. And they laid no hand on the plunder. Which tells us that. They were careful not to use material gain as a reason for the action that they took. It wasn't to to gain riches or possessions or land or buildings. It was not for that reason whatsoever. They simply 
wanted to make it perfectly clear that they were there to defend their right to live and not for financial gain. They were simply defending themselves against all who hated them, all who wanted to take their lives, all who would come against them. And so three times we see that. So it's emphasized, in other words, when something is repeated like that, you know that there's some emphasis there. It's something that we ought to pay attention to. You know, it's not, not for any financial gain, not, for, not to accumulate riches. It wasn't for that. It was just simply to defend their right to live. So the 10 sons of Haman are now dead. 500 men in Susa are also dead. The day had come and they were able to defend themselves. Verse 11 says that very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Uh, you know, and this is a, a statement, something that he, he knows now the word, word has come back. And so he knows that there has been so much that has taken place in all of the other 127 provinces. So he makes that statement. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces in comparison to what they did there? Now, what is your wish? Is what he asks her. It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, her response is this. If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. So, you know, the king was, was not moved by the number of casualties that they suffered in, in Susa. They, they he was not taken by that, but, and, and especially in light of the fact that had the Jews been destroyed, the impact to the kingdom would far exceed the simple 500 that they experienced on that specific day, on the 13th. It would far exceed that. And so when the report came to the king regarding the number of people that were killed in Susa, he then turned around and again made that statement, if this is what it is in Susa, I'll wait to hear what has happened throughout the whole empire, the whole kingdom. But he turned and then he asked Queen Esther what she wanted to have done. This is what took place today. What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? And her request for him was to issue another decree. You see, the decree was for that specific day. So she was asking for another decree to follow. The, the following day, to allow the Jews to do the very same thing that was done on the 13th day. So please allow us to do that also on the 14th day. And also one other thing. Remember how it was that Haman was coming to get permission from the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had built on his property. That 75-foot stake that he wanted to impale Mordecai on. And so it was that Esther was asking for permission from the king for the very same thing. Nothing could be done without the king's permission. And so this is what she was asking. The same thing happened the following day. And also, by the way, Haman's ten sons for them to be hung on the gallows. Now, it's believed that this was to display the Jews' victory over Haman, over the enemies of the Jews, uh, to serve as an example. And of course, to make sure that no one follows 
suit. And there are many people, as we read through this, and you may have perhaps found it difficult to read through this, and Esther's request, you know, seems to be over the top. It seems like she's lacking compassion. But she is criticized for that. Like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm only pointing out what I've come to know is that she has been criticized by many commentators, those who have read through. They've criticized Esther for her lack of compassion since she had already known victory on that one day. Why did she need to ask for this to happen again on the next day? The number of people that were killed the following day in the same in the same location, in the same city, makes it apparent that there remained more people that hated the Jews and wanted them dead, wanted them to be killed. You see, in Esther's wisdom, she would not stop until she and her people had complete victory. Complete victory. Listen, if we consider Joshua, Joshua is told by God to devote certain peoples to destruction, complete, right? Well, don't leave any. Devote them to destruction. Why? Because he knew that they were utterly corrupt. So there were 500 on the 13th, 300 on the 14th, Meaning that there were almost just as many on the following day as there were on the first day that were coming against the Jews. They were, uh, had full authority to not only defend themselves, but take them out completely. And they did. 800 in total. Now here's what's interesting too, as we consider the 300 on the following day. But Haman's sons. Remember who they were? Remember who Haman, what lineage he came from? The Amalekites. Haman and his sons were descendants of the Amalekites. The very people that God commanded King Saul to devote to destruction. And he failed to do that. It was God's judgment as he was using King Saul as an instrument of judgment to come down on the Amalekites. And yet, King Saul failed to follow through. And what we have here is what God had commanded Saul to do and had failed to do was now being completed by God through Mordecai on the Amalekites. And so we have the, the complete devotion of the enemies of the Jews to destruction. We have those who would come against them, 500 the first day, 300 the next day, but that's just in Susa. And then we have the 10 sons of Haman. Remember this. You cannot play with sin. Sometimes in our compromise, we, we leave a little bit around, a little compromise, but remember what the Bible says. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. You leave just a little. And it leavens a whole lump. You got to completely commit it to the cross as far as our sin is concerned. Crucify it with the flesh. Verse 16, as we continue, says, Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend them, uh, uh, to defend their lives, and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. The third time there. This was on the thir 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th. And rested on the 15th day. Making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns... Hold the 14th day of the month of 
of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Remember that the land, this kingdom, stretched from India, northern Africa, to the Mediterranean. It's a large portion of land. 127 provinces. And so we consider 500, or actually 800 in the capital. And then we have another 75,000 throughout the whole kingdom. Again, considering the population, it is a small percentage in comparison. You see, many people, again, they came and they supported the Jews. Remember, the Jews had been there for many years. They lived with the people. They worked with them. There were a number that went back to Jerusalem in two waves, but many stayed behind. Most, in fact, stayed behind. So 75,000 people were killed and destroyed by the Jews with the end of the sword. But the emphasis here is that the Jews enjoyed great victory. And as we read here, this great victory, because those in Susa struck their enemies on the 13th and 14th days of Adar, and those in the rural areas of the empire only struck their enemies on one day, and that was on the 13th day. Those in the city celebrated their victory over their enemies on the 15th. On that day, they feasted, they celebrated, they, they uh, just, they were so thankful, they were grateful. So they celebrated on the 15th, but everyone else in the entire province celebrated on the 14th day. It was a great feast enjoyed by all the Jews. These were days of gladness as they should have been, right? They should have been, and they were, indeed, Verse 20 says, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Now, we don't have, like, we don't know where actually Mordecai recorded uh, these events, but we do know about them as we have the book of Esther. It would be awesome to, to have those, the things that he had recorded written down as far as the details of these events. But we don't have them. But, but what we do have is how it was that Mordecai recorded these events and how they were distributed to all of the Jews throughout all of the provinces of King Ahasuerus, obliging them. So Mordecai was obliging them to observe these days Every year. It's not just this year. We're going to observe them every single year. We need to remember that we got relief from our enemies. These are to be festive days. Mordecai, remember that he was in a place of influence, power, authority. He was, again, given that favor by the Lord. But although Mordecai was obliging them or compelling them to observe the relief that, that they had come to know, the intent was just simply this. Don't ever forget the amazing relief or this deliverance that you have come to know. Don't ever forget that. They regarded it as an e event significant enough to commemorate every year. Every year we're going to commemorate this. We're gonna, going to acknowledge this event. We're going to celebrate so that it's never forgotten. We are forgetful people. 
Sometimes we start out realizing what God has done in our lives, whether it be initially uh, the salvific event that we have come to experience in our own lives, or perhaps something that he's done in our lives that's been that's significant. And we tend to forget those things. We get to, into certain circumstances and we doubt or we just our, our faith kind of wanes a bit. We should never allow it to do that. We should be a people who are daily in the word of God, remembering his faithfulness, acknowledging him, drawing near to him, having fellowship with him, communing with him, walking in the spirit according to the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit that we may be grateful in our hearts, that it may be expressed outwardly in the manner in which, which we live. Because the principle is to remember and acknowledge God's deliverance, God's goodness, God's sovereignty, God's providence. To celebrate His great victory. In the ways in which the Jews were called to celebrate this is significant. As they were to give presents of food and gifts to each other and share in that. But they were also to acknowledge the poor. Considering perhaps themselves as being poor, um, humble, they were able to do nothing in and of themselves. They had to rely on the king the king's edict that had come out. They were powerless. In fact, it is known in Jewish tradition that they had, the people had no speaking roles whatsoever. There were only two. One in particular, which was Esther. Esther was the one who came into the courts, the king's courts. And they acknowledge this, as she was brought there by the Lord for such a time as this. It's an acknowledgement also, again, acknowledging her to be that person that the Lord has brought for that, for that occasion. But for them, oh, we, we have no speaking roles. But we celebrate our deliverance, our relief from our enemies. We do it with great joy. We exchange gifts. In fact, what it does is it, is it reflects community, is what it does. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. That's so important. You know, even yesterday, as um, you know, I, I spent some time um, once every few months. What happens is a bunch of senior pastors, they get together with David Rosales, who is the pastor of Calvary Chapel Chino Valley. And, um, and there's certain things that we talk about just, just in talking, but one of the, the things that he had laid out is, is love, love that's demonstrated one to another. How that should, um, that should be a love that is ministered to one another to come alongside one another, to esteem others more than ourselves, uh, to truly support and build up and encourage, to do those things. But we can only do that, number one, if we are physically in fellowship, number one, right? And number two, if we truly esteem others more than ourselves. In other words, we're looking for opportunities to minister to others. Um, to use those, those moments as divine opportunities uh, to come alongside your brother and sister in Christ. To truly, see, you are the church. I'm not the church. One person is not the church. This building is not the church. You're the church. We are the church. And so if you're complaining about the church, <laughs> you're complaining about yourself. So what are you going to do to fix it? Right? 
Make sure that you're aligning with Scripture yourself. You know, Pastor Dave was talking about don't tear each other down. Instead, build each other up. Do that. That's what this was. That's what this is every year. In fact, this is one of the most popular uh, festivals that they observe. Purim. They, they love this festival. And it's community. They all gather together. They share, they exchange these gifts of uh, food. You know, they're, they're sharing all of this and enjoying that time together. They enjoy community as it was preserved by the Lord. And again, acknowledge that they were the poor who were at God's disposal to receive this help. Humility should mark us as well. Verse 23, and we'll read how, how it was that they observed this, or they agreed to it. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast per, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they call these days Purim, after the term Pur, therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city. And that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants." And so we read that the Jews accepted, they received, they agreed to continue to observe these two days. And to this day, they still observe this every single year. As I said earlier, it's one of their most popular observances, their festivals. And verse 27 tells us that those who obligated themselves to serve these two days were the Jews, their offspring, and all who joined them. Noting that the community that had supported them had now joined them in celebrating, observing their deliverance. But they became part of them. In fact, if we go back to chapter 8, verse 17, the second portion of verse 17, it says, And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Remember, I, was, I had pointed out that um, the fear that had come upon them is, is a reverent fear. Realizing they were receiving favor. Because the Medo-Persians, the people, they didn't need to convert in order for them to be saved. They didn't need to do that. There's no requirement for them to do that. They could have simply refrained from attacking the Jews. That's all they had to do. Refrain from attacking them. We are in full support. We don't intend to do you any harm whatsoever. That's all they had to do. So they didn't have to convert to Judaism. And yet many did. And we see here how it was that they obligated themselves. We will observe this festival with you as part of you now. We come and we commit ourselves as per the Mosaic law, as people that are now you and with you, willing to and giving themselves to observe Purim as well, this festival of gratitude. It was a celebration. It's wonderful to see that. In verse 29, it says, then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. The letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth 
and that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Now, as we see here, this is um, now we're coming to the conclusion of this, this book, and we see here how Queen Esther is using her authority to help establish this observance. In verse 30, I don't know, perhaps your translations say words of goodwill and assurance. That literally means words of peace and truth, which served to officially confirm all that had taken place as words of peace and truth. The event had secured peace throughout the kingdom as confrontation was required. And this conflict, actually this confrontation, brought about a peace throughout the whole kingdom. And so this 13th day of Adar is observed as a day of fasting. And overall, it is a three-day joyous celebration. And as we read earlier, uh, it, it's, a month, it's, it's a whole month that is a consideration and acknowledgement for this very event that took place in that day. And then the epilogue, which is chapter 10, verse 1. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. In all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. And so, you know, one of the things that the conclusion to this book um, describes is uh, these imposed taxes. So it's a, it's a good and the bad here. So we have these imposed taxes, this tribute. Um, but we also, and the emphasis here, of course, as we see, is the greatness which Mordecai ascended to. Mordecai was second to the king, and he was loved by the Jews, and he was loved by the king. As he sought the welfare of his people, and he spoke peace to them. In other words, Mordecai, we know very clearly, it's, he's been described to us time and time again throughout this whole book. He was a man of integrity. He was a man who spoke truth. And he was a man who also, in doing that, was used to bring about peace throughout the whole province. In fact, the conclusion of this book tells us that they were enjoying peace throughout the whole kingdom. But Mordecai wasn't out for himself. He wasn't out for himself whatsoever. He was a servant of his people. That's what we should be known for, is just, we're not out for ourselves. Not to further our own agenda. It's just the welfare of God's people and the glory of God. That's it. But this man also spoke truth. Truth will always bring true peace. Truth will always bring true peace. True peace. Walking in the truth. And I'm not, I'm not talking about being absent of conflict. I'm not talking about that. Because the Lord warned us, in this world you will have tribulation, right? But take heart, I have overcome the world. It tells us that we're going to experience testing and trials. We're going to experience all those things. I'm not talking about an absence of conflict, of issues, circumstances that are difficult. I'm not talking about that. But when you walk in the truth, although everything may fall apart around you, the one living in truth, walking in truth, will always remain upright before the Lord. That's what's important. When you are walking upright before the Lord, you will know that peace that surpasses all understanding. Uh, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And that's what we need. The heart being the, the seat of our emotions, the very place where we form decisions. That needs to be guarded by Christ himself. And when we walk uprightly before the Lord in truth, by the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit walking in truth, we will know that peace. And that is what Mordecai was known for, a man who spoke, who was, who spoke truth, who was a servant of the people, and was a man of peace. The book closes with the picture of, this, of peace, prosperity, and prosperity for all the Jews, God's people. And uh, as we know, God's name is not mentioned once. I'll say that one, one last time. God's name is not mentioned once. But it is evident that God's hand of providence had moved powerfully to deliver his people and give them relief from the evil intentions of their enemies. Again, Romans, uh, well, I, I remind you of this, and I'll close with this. Romans 8.31. Perhaps a word of encouragement for you. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Oh, Father, may these words ring in our hearts, in our minds, in our ears, Lord. May we commit this verse to memory, Lord, and may we be reminded of, these, of this verse, Lord. Lord, especially when times of difficulty come our way. Lord, that we can remember how it is that you are faithful. Now, Lord, if uh, you are for us, then truly who can be against us? Nobody compares to you. Nobody is above you. You're sovereign, Lord. You're God overall. So we thank you, Lord, for your love. We thank you, Lord, that you have secured uh, our place in heaven and by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I just ask that you would fill us with your spirit afresh. Empower us, Lord, as you equip us for the work of the ministry to bless you, to glorify you, to walk in your ways and to encourage others to do the very same thing. So we thank you, Lord, and praise you in Jesus' name.